2: Who likes football?
1: Me! 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 Hi, I'm Matt Jansen, and you're listening to the BRFCS podcast.
0: This is a BRFCS podcast sponsored by the lovely people at The Terrace Store. Follow them on Twitter at The Terrace Life and check out their website at TheTerraceStore.com. Hello there, you're
3: listening to the BRFCS podcast, and this bit is simply a mechanism to assist the editing together of two different parts. Sorry to let daylight in upon magic, but there it is. To kick us off on this episode, here's Bill Arthur, and he's reading once again from Daniel Gray's fine book, Extra Time, 50 Further Delights of Modern Football. This is seeing a player in a non-football setting.
1: Sometimes we act as if footballers do not walk the same streets as us, or inhabit the same living realm. It is as if they belong among ghosts, visiting themselves upon us occasionally and memorably. We find it hard to imagine them doing as we do, putting the bins out, catching trains, mourning about popcorn prices at the cinema. Do they grate cheese or wear pyjamas? There is an offshoot of this mental block. We're fixated by any hand-me-down crumb of intelligence that we hear about a football having a real life. Someone has seen a goalkeeper in the village chip shop and you must know more about his order and choice of condiments. A barber's kids attend the local primary with a squad player's son and you interrogate the hairdresser as to whether the child plays football himself and whether his dad is actively engaged in school life. The plumber you employ claims that he once fixed a winger's leaky dishwasher and you ask the question what was his house like? An inquiry you rarely make of anyone else. Then one day without warning you spot a footballer out in the wild. A sighting all of your own, a titbit to pass on to others. You wish you had known it was going to happen so that mental and conversational preparations could have been made. Instead you panic and flail around, your heart pecking at your chest like a toffee hammer. If the encounter is close, your stare must be accompanied by words to avoid potential legal repercussions. Unfortunately, even a mere uh, uh, hello comes out in three different pitches. This is not the reaction of everybody, of course. I have seen men, and it is always men, who are able to merrily walk up to a footballer, call him by his first name and tell him all about his own thigh strain. The best terrain in which to forage for a footballer seems to be the supermarket. You push your trolley around a corner into toilet rolls and pet foods, and there he is, that little lad your club have just signed from Spain. There is a strange compulsion to see what is in his trolley, as if you will report him to the club should it contain pot noodles and skips, like one of Busby, or Ferguson's nightlife spies. Restaurants offer fertile viewing prospects too, though nothing can prepare you for the shock of a well-paid striker and his family dining in the same mid-market pizza chain as you and yours. Never have you wanted your children to make friends with someone else's as you do in that moment. Some have even spotted footballers walking down the street as if they were just normal human beings. This is most likely in a tourist city or seaside town, and it is impossible to resist a passing nod. It is a charming thing that even weary football supporters can be star After all, we are only like this because we care. In the mid-90s, we were uh, on holiday in Jersey, and I was at the bar ordering some lunch. And when I came back to the table, my wife said to me, I've just seen Jack Walker. And I said, what, really? She said, yeah. And I looked around the pub and I couldn't see him anywhere. So I went into another room in the pub and no, he wasn't there. Do you know what? I even went to the gents to see if he was in the gents, although what I would have said to him if he had been in the gents, I have no idea. Eventually I went outside and he was sitting in the garden with his wife having his lunch. I thought, well, I've got to say something, but you don't really want to dis- uh, disturb the guy in the middle of his lunch. But anyway, I did. So I just said, uh, hello, Mr. Walker, Uh, I'm a Rover supporter. I just want to thank you for everything you've done for the club. And he nodded acknowledgement and I walked away. And that was it.
2: Hi, I'm Tez Ilias of Blackburn, and you are listening to the BRFCS podcast.
3: And here's a clue as to who our special guest is in this episode.
0: And the club have been working to develop a relationship with the various diverse communities in the town. They employed their first integration and development manager almost two years ago to oversee that engagement.
2: From my perspective and from you know people within the communities I'm trying to, you know, engage with the club they have someone now they can you know talk to they have someone there at the club that listens to them and understands their needs understands you know what the barriers that might face them coming in so from my perspective is to make sure we lift any barriers we've got in place to try and make the club as welcome as possible for them
3: i am absolutely delighted to have as a special guest on our brfcs podcast this episode um a gentleman who, with the possible exception of Ben Britton diaz has been the most vocal and, I think, the, <laughs> the most retweeted person of, in the Blackburn Rovers universe. It's i Sufi. Yaz, we've talked about how to pronounce your name and we've decided I can't pronounce it, so I'm going to call you Yaz if that's okay. But welcome, right, welcome to the podcast. And uh, how, how are things going at the moment? How are you?
2: Can I just say I'm popping my podcast cherry today because it's my first one ever. So thanks for having me, and I'm delighted it's with yourself. Um, You know, so I've had a few invites, but this is I think the first one where I felt, you know what, you see, and I'll be fine. He'll, you know, he'll be (laughs) be gentle. I'm good. We'll be be be
3: gentle with you. Don't worry. This is this is very much a conversation and exploration. I think because all joking aside, I I think your profile on social media is second only to Ben at the moment, and that's not a bad accolade by any stretch of the imagination. I have to say. the, the hashtag you yeah. would express has been prevalent, and we'll get into that, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit more detail. But what I'm keen to understand a little bit more, initially at least, is let, let's let's learn a little bit more about you then. Tell us about growing up and how you became aware, first of all, that there was a sport called football and that you know, your hometown had a team that played it.
2: Yeah. So I, I was born in Blackburn, um, went to primary school in Blackburn, played, you know, obviously, you know, in, in the... Um, You know, my primary school playgrounds, lunchtime, after school, um, any chance we got, Nine, you know, we were out the door first thing in the morning. We didn't come home till 10 at night. We played football, you know, in in the local parks, etc. So um, football was something we were brought up with. Um, uh, Me and my mates, you know, literally escaped the house at any opportunity to try and get out and play football in the parks. In terms of, obviously, memory and um, uh, I'm going to be 40 this year. So, my memory of my childhood is kind of, you know, slowly, slowly fading away. Um, I'm, I'm wondering at what age I start forgetting what I did, you know, what uh, in high school, et cetera, as well, because primary school is a bit of a blur. But my first memory in terms of actual following football and professional football is probably the same for anyone around my kind of generation. Growing up in that time, I was born in 82. So my first memory was that playoff final against Leicester, and that's the first, that's the game I remember watching. I might have watched games before that, like I said, I probably you know I can't remember watching anything before that. But the playoff final was the first game I watched live on tele, on on TV, uh, and I remember um, growing up, we as a family at the time. Um, We moved um, from one street to another when I was seven. And for the first three years, my dad decided we don't want TV in the house. So we used to go to my uncle's house to watch TV. Uh, Those days, my uncle was a massive Blackburn Rovers fan. Um, And he was really passionate. He'd be one of those, he'd smoke 20 cigarettes during a match just because of how stressed he'd get (laughs) uh, watching. So we used to always go to his house to watch Rovers. So, my first memory was watching the playoff final at his house. And, you know, obviously, I, I still remember the new old goal. Um, I still remember that feeling of, we're Rovers and, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, we're kind of, you know, we're in the Premier League. Um, I don't remember life before that. So, uh, you know, I think Tez Ilyas said it a couple of weeks ago when he did an interview with Andy Bays that that's I remember growing up. Rovers were the big time. Rovers were you know, uh, the team to follow, especially obviously if you're from the area. You know, my memories growing up were watching Rovers in those first few years trying to compete for the Premier League title. We were fortunate, let's just say.
3: Absolutely. I can't, I, I can't, I think that starting supporting Rovers, perhaps in 1991, was possibly just about the absolute sweet spot because to, to have seen what happened during the 90s um, was just extraordinary. It was very much, a, very much an outlier, I think.
2: I was I was nine years old when we were in the playoff final, um, so it was literally the right time for me, yeah. obviously, um, being a kid of that age, um, but um, my first game that I watched um, Rovers play wasn't until, I think it was after we lifted the Premier League trophy, a couple of seasons after that, we actually got to go to Ewood Park to watch a match, even though Ewood Park was you 10-15 know, minutes from where I lived. Yeah. Um, yeah. so you know but closely obviously watched him he again um, you know something I'm passionate about but I watched us lift the Premier League trophy in the same uncle's living room and you know I remember the scenes and I remember you know so many people going down to your park and me thinking I'm sat here in my uncle's you know room watching it I'd love to be you know be down there and I said I think he smoked about 40 that day um <laughs> uh, you know, there was, um, that was, it, like I said, we were very, very fortunate to grow up in that era of watching robbers compete for trophies and, you know, um, and ve- a lot of memories, um, from that time, you know, the, our foray to Europe or, you know, the Trelleborgs and the Rosenborgs and the Spartak Moscows. And I remember even thinking, I can't believe Blackburn Rovers is playing Spartak Moscow. You know, and it was like, wow, such a big thing. And, uh, Let's just say it didn't end well. But
3: no, I was going to say that that's a match that lingers in the memory, but for all the wrong reasons. Uh, <laughs> exactly. I, I distinctly remember I was um, I was on a course actually that week away from work, and I, I'd sort of like um, we'd got an evening session, and when when, when there was a drinks break. I was kind of like nipping out into into the bar area because there was there was a TV on. <laughs> Somebody said, "Oh, your lot are showing themselves up." What do you mean? They said they have just had a fight with each other. Oh, great, fantastic! And then I saw it on the news later on. I thought
2: only Rovers. I remember that game game for different reasons. My granddad had actually passed away the day before. So when we're in, like, when someone passes away, for example, from you know, from my in, yeah, it's like there's a period of mourning where you don't watch TV, you don't. You know, do other things where you normally would do. Yeah. So everyone, family were together, and we sneaked upstairs to watch the match. And I remember watching that, thinking. And we switched it off after that. fight happened. <laughs> we weren't supposed to be watching. First of all, we knew we'd get in trouble if we, were, you know, if we were found to be watching, you know, the match. And that happened. And we were like, great, you know. But I, I distinctly remember that all for the wrong reasons.
3: Not one of our glory nights, I have to say. Not that we had that many mm-hmm. in Europe, but Rosenberg was probably the only one. So that that was growing up. So you hit the sweet spot. You didn't you didn't have all the the abject terror of the third division in the nineteen seventies and all that sort of good stuff. But of course, later on, um, as as we we may get into, you have seen Rovers in the third tier and now bouncing back. And fingers crossed, we'll see uh, we'll we'll see us make that 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 leap back into the Premier League. All being well, of course, but. Your links now with, with the club. So how did you first become aware of the role and what was the what was the introduction to it and how did you get how did you get the job?
2: So I've always I've never supported anyone else um in the English leagues besides Barcelona. Uh sorry, besides Blackburn Rovers. I was gonna go mention Barcelona because um when I was a young you know kid, I watched Ronaldinho and I fell in love with Ronaldinho. Um so I started following Barcelona a little bit um whilst I was there, but Blackburn was always, in terms of English football teams, I've never, you know, Blackburn was my team and it was always about ropes. Um In 2013, um, I was part of um, a local mosque that set up a grassroots football club. Um, and literally every hour of the day went into running that football club and we grew our membership base to about 450 kids, 500 kids at one point. So in two, I think it was about 2018, 2019, Um, we started having um, people from Blackburn Rovers reach out just to say, guys, you know, we need a bit of help from you. We need some of your kids to be coming to, you know, coming to Rovers, watch the match, et cetera. Um, We started, you know, having some kind of like dealings where we'd get, um, you know, Rovers reaching out just to say, look, tell us what you can do. Can you bring some, you know, kids down to a game? Can you take part in something like this? Um, And at the time, it felt a bit fragmented. It felt a bit like there was, you know, they were, they were trying to the best of their abilities to reach out, yeah. do something. But it was almost like, um, you know, there was nothing there of where you could really say, right, they've got a strategy. There's some things, you know, but the the engagement part was definitely there. And then there's important factors which kind of makes you proud of your football club and makes you proud of the fact that, you know, you are from Blackburn and you are from a multicultural, diverse area. And, you know, and when the you know when the prayer room was opened in 2018,
0: Blackburn have also opened a dedicated prayer room at their stadium for all faiths and religions, for both men and women, and it's proven to be a popular addition at Ewood Park.
2: I don't see many prayer rooms at football grounds, you know, so yeah. it's a little bit unique. It was, and when we did a tweet a few weeks ago where we told supporters if they were attending that they, we had this prayer room where they can go and pray their prayers. And so many football clubs up and down their country were tagging in their football clubs to say, why do we not have one? And there weren't even Muslim supporters. There were non-Muslim supporters who were saying, why does our club not have one of these? So it was really, really powerful. And our fans could know when they come to a game at Ewood Park, they can take care of their religious duties as well, as well as supporting their local club. Being very, very proud of my football club, thinking, do you know what? This is a club that's embracing its diversity and embracing the fact that you know there are people there who have specific needs. That's one, that was my dealings in terms of working with the football club. Very little engagement, very little kind of you know, and um, probably you know quite a lot from the distance. But it was actually on social media, on Facebook, that I saw a job role advertised. I literally, I remember going. I remember that day going, you know, um, going home and saying to my family, "This is me." This is this is what I was. It was all. Oh, I remember. <laughs> I actually remember saying this. This is what I was born to do. I'm going for this. I'm hundred percent going for this. This is something I would love to do. And I remember when it was advertised. It was actually advertised below what I was earning previously. Um, you know, quite you know, if I was to take the role, it'd actually be taking quite a bit of a pay cut to do it. But it didn't bother me. It was like, no, you know, this is something that I would absolutely love to do, and I'd love to have. For me, as soon as I saw it, I was like, I'm going for this. This, you know. And there had been a couple of posts I'd gone for previously that were football related. One was with the Lancashire Football Association, where I'd got into the you know to the interview stage and had not got the role. Kind of something that I really wanted to do. But when it was Blackburn Rovers, and when it was my town, and when it was my club, it's like I want this so badly. Um, And I remember going to the interview, I I remember being, I'm not normally, you know, I'm quite confident in the sense, I would never, you know, nothing ever phases me. But I remember those couple of days just before the interview and the actual interview day, I knew how badly I wanted it.
3: You're almost anticipating the disappointment if you don't get it, aren't you, then, at that point? And it's like, how will I handle it?
2: Yeah. And for me, the job role was very, very specific. It was literally to help the club enhance its engagement with the South Asian community. And, you know, it couldn't be more clearly defined. And I was like, apart from, you know, what I was doing at the time, so I was a marketing, I was head of marketing for an e-commerce operation, totally different, Um, but it was an online e-commerce operation. I was doing the marketing for that. But like I mentioned earlier, I was volunteering to run a grassroots football club, but I was also on the exec for the local league, the Eastlands Football League. Um, And they have 4,500 kids playing in that league. So I had all the connections with grassroots football. I had a lot of connections with local schools in the area right. and I had connections with local mosques in the area. So I was like, you Sports
3: know,
2: yeah. I was I was just thinking, I can do this. This is me being invited for the interview and actually going there and seeing some people walking out that I recognised who'd also been for the interview. And I was thinking, <laughs> you know, I, swear, but I was like, shit, you know, <laughs> he, he's a pretty good candidate for this role as well. So it's not just about, you know, I'm like, I bet I my game when I'm talking to, you know. And uh, <laughs> and I remember being really, really pleasant and it was really nice, but I had no idea whether I'd done well or not. And it was a couple of weeks later where they went, look, we'd love to have you. Honestly, I th- I remember that as being a feeling of, after all these years, finally finding something I want to do.
3: And that's the secret, isn't it? I think if you if you... You're passionate and enthusiastic about your work. It just doesn't feel like work. And yes. you know, I'm fortunate to have had two or three jobs in my career where I've hit that sweet spot, and the the elation yeah. that you get from it is absolutely spot on. So tell tell us what you thought you were walking into, and and how has the role evolved in the time that you've been doing? You've been doing it two years now. Uh,
2: two two years, but obviously two years with COVID, so um... not two
3: normal years. yeah, Yeah.
2: Not normal years. Feels at like all. 10, I
3: suppose, in many respects.
2: It actually feels like a blur in terms of what's happened over the last two years. Um, but when I was walking into the role, um, the one thing that pleased me the most was the club were very open and honest to turn around and say, We want you to try and build the strategy around how we engage. Um, and it wasn't a case of, We want you to do X, Y, and Z. It was a case of you tell us what you think. You write the vision. Yeah, you write the vision, you write the strategy. We'll kind of say, okay, from our experience, this is what we think you should be doing, this is what you think you shouldn't be doing, but you tell us what you want to do. We've got a specific goal in mind in terms of what what we want to see from it, but you tell us in what way you can improve our engagement with the South Asian community and how can you Make our you know job easy in terms of bringing more people to the park. Um, and is- initially, there was a couple of different elements to it. Uh, one was the fact that it was very, made clear from the outset that this was not a um, by next week we want to see another 300 fans in the stadium. You know, from the South Asian community, or it was very, made very much clear that this is something that we're looking at doing, so it reaps the rewards of it within the next four, five, six years. Yeah you so it, a seed. It was made, Exactly. Yeah. So it was almost, you know, it helped me a lot knowing that I wasn't going for quick wins. I was actually going for a longer term strategy of how can we kind of change the shape of, um, you know, the fans uh, for the future. And that's where, and that's where He would express and the next generation and everything else kind of came about. Where I was thinking, I'm not pressured into bringing, you know, the, the 30, 40 year old lap supporter or someone like that. It's more a case of I'm planning for the, the future. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. Given
3: your marketing background, then this this feels like it's as much brand awareness exactly. and brand recognition as opposed to well, being a salesman that's got to get yeah. people through the through 100%, the turnstile. One
2: hundred percent. You know, I recognise, and you mentioned the social media following, but the recent coverage we've had in terms of the work we've been doing, it all comes from raising that awareness, and it all comes from, and you know marketing it all comes from raising your profile a little bit um, and I know I had that experience where PR wise I, I knew what people wanted you know to see happening and black men itself I know the challenges I knew the challenges I knew the, the negative press it had had in the past not just for footballing reasons societal and other stuff and I knew we had an opportunity here to make a real kind of difference the one thing I will say is when I started the role I, I the one thing that scared me the most was the reception from your traditional fan um, from the white community who's been there for years and years and years followed us through thick and thin and turned around and saying why are we giving special treatment why are we doing yeah. this why are we yeah. this? why are we... Yeah. and that sort of kind of you know response and I remember having those concerns of how much can I do without, you know, antagonising those fans who've followed us through thick and thin, been there, you know, away games, home games and all that, and trying to make my work seem important to them um, in terms of the work of the club. And, you know, what what was a clear problem that the club needed to address, which was making the stadium a bit more representative of the town itself. And pre-COVID, I remember thinking... I'm stepping on eggshells here a little bit. I'm trying to kind of, you know, do things that won't um, alienate some fans or make them think And it was only until after COVID and this season, all of a sudden, I don't know what happened. And I don't know whether it was a result of COVID and, you know, everything we've been through and people coming together and people, you know, having much more understanding of each other. I don't know whether it was the Black Lives Matter movement. I don't think it was. But I think it was more to do with the fact that through COVID, people had realised we need to stick together. We need to, you know, do more for each other. And all of a sudden, it was that um, West Brom game, where the first game where, you know, kind of, uh, we bought about 60 kids in um, on the Wood Express for the, you know, for the West Brom match. The first match we could do anything. I remember that about at least five people walked up to me and just went, "I love this. This is amazing." And I remember on social media, you know, just promoting. The number of fans that started to kind of say, I love what you're doing. And it kind of just started building from that. And you mentioned the social media following, but that community grew so quickly in terms of offering support and saying, what can we do? The likes of yourself, the guys at Rose Chat, so many different fans, the Gary Smiths and people, you know, reaching out to say, let us know how we can support. What can we do? That made me feel like empowered in what I could do.
3: I think there is a groundswell of, of essential decency in human beings yep. that 's my, my my kind of my starting point point. and I, I I went to school in Blackburn in the 70s and, and early eighties and it wasn't it wasn 't necessarily a pleasant place to to, to grow up if you know, if you' if in one of the uh, one of the minorities at that time and Ewood certainly was was not i wouldn 't have said it would have been right at the top of welcoming places
2: see growing up we were always told and, and shown the bad side of football you know the the, the crowds and the swearing and the, the racial abuse and, and things like that but we're, we're moving more away from that and you know let's like say they've created a family friendly stand.
1: One of
0: the factors behind why maybe pupils haven't been accessing these experiences previously is transport. Now pupils are dropped off at our school and we provide this facility for them the whole
2: experience.
3: So yeah. that, that change in culture and that, that shift in mindset I think has been has been welcomed but I think most right-minded people looked at the population of Blackburn and saw that we weren't exploiting that and that if the, the, the club was to have a future, we absolutely needed to that. And I first became aware of the work that you were doing, I think with an interview in The Times uh, that, I, that I saw tweeted, and I thought, wow, this is long overdue. This really is long overdue. So to, yeah. to see how that's mushroomed in the last couple of years, I think, is is terrific. And to a lesser extent, but sim- motivated similarly, I'm a big advocate of what Accrington Stanley do in, in, in Accrington. And I think Andy yeah. Holt there, it, it is about growing the next generation of supporters and giving the shirts to the school kids. You know, wear this, don't wear a Blackburn or a Burnley shirt or a Man United or a Man City shirt. Yeah. Wear this and wear it with pride. Children
2: like Mariam and Isa, who are cousins. On match days, she wears a top breakfast time, she wears it all day. Night time, she will not take it off. That's how excited they are.
1: So why do you wear it so much? Because I really like Black Baron
3: because
2: I live in it. I will be honest with you, Ian. I do love that. I've always admired what they do there. But I feel like, and this is where I kind of think where we're unique in that sense. And I, I do think we we're, we're probably are the only club in the whole of the country where it's not just about a one off kind of, you know, let's give a shirt out. It's not about, it's about a more year long and continuous strategy to say, right, what can we do, how do we do it? And anything we offer on the Wood Express, for example, we offer to everyone, anything we offer to, you know, in terms of my role and, you know, it's open to anyone from any community and we try to, it's mostly for the type of fan or the, you know, the younger fan. Um, It kind of goes back to the conversation we had, you know, what I told you earlier. I was a young Rovers fan and for different reasons, there were barriers in place that prevented me coming to Ewood Park. One was the fact that my mum and dad had no interest in football. The other was, you know, probably cost in terms of, the, you know, the price of going to a football match yeah. as a group. And I do remember coming to a few games where, you know, you'll remember this, where it was like kids for a quid or, um, you know, I, you know fiver. But I came to those games. Did that make me a long-term season ticket holder? No, it didn't. My point is, it's good doing things on, you know, as a one-off here and there, but you need a much more it longer term- habit. Exactly, and it, you know, and you need, you know, a strategy there in place where it's not about the one-off come to a game. It's about how can we keep engaging with these people and how can we make that place? And just something you touched on earlier, um, which you, when you said about the 70s and the 80s, I take my daughter swimming at the local um, leisure centre on a Saturday morning. And the number of people now recognize me you know come up to me and say, "Look, you know what you're doing at Rover's really good, but I remember having a conversation with someone a couple of weeks ago from South Asian Heritage, and he says, "My first memory of Rovers was when I was eighteen, and he's probably my age now um was my first memory was when I was eighteen coming to watch a game and hearing the monkey chants and the racist abuse, and he was like, "Put me off for life yeah but he says i'd come that. you know I'd come now and I'd come again yeah and the number one thing when I went out and spoke to a number of people, there were a lot of different reasons, but especially with adults, the number one reason was their memory of a game they'd come to where they'd seen something, heard something that wasn't, you know, something where they thought, okay, I feel a bit well, you know, I feel a bit out of place here. And that's why it's an easier win to look at children and it's an easier yeah. win to look at younger generation, because they've not seen any of that. They don't know any different. No baggage. There's no baggage there at all. So it's, it's a much easier win in that sense. And also, they're the fans of the future. But going back to just my point was, for me, I want I wanted someone to offer me he would express when I was a kid. I wanted someone to say to my mum and dad, it's £6 for ticket and transport, we'll take your son. My remit is to help the club become more engaging and you know we were and something i you know came to be earlier we've been doing things for years we have you know we've been doing things for years i think the only difference now is it's someone's there to be able to say right there's a longer term strategy in place here and someone's there to take all by the horns a little bit
3: yeah i think you touched on it earlier but the, the club wasn't sure of trying tactical initiatives yeah uh, and yeah, you that know, they do have a benefit of, of sorts but it is about creating habits in people um, and certainly I think um, you, you talked about growing up through the premiership winning, it's that those early teen years, uh, without us realising it at the time I think, that form so many of our habits, our, our preferences, it shapes so much about who we are in that in that age line. So if we can get people going to Ewood for two, three, four consecutive seasons in, in that age band, they're hooked. Uh, yeah, I know. To, I know to my personal emotional cost. You know, you're in. That's it. You can't change your football team, uh, and and you're stuck with them. So it's terrific. works for sure. It,
2: it is. Um, there's a. If you mentioned the Times piece earlier. There's an interview in there with a the young lad called Jade, and he's 17 now, I believe, and he's been coming for the past two, three seasons. Two seasons ago, there was two of them, and now there's about 16 of them. And the number of times I get a message from someone to say, "Can you get me tickets to sit with them?" For the South Asian community, but yeah. they sit where all the season ticket holders sit right at the top of end. You no, know, you don't get seats in there now at all. But the number of people of that age who've messaged me to say, I want to be there with them. I want to sit with them. I want to be part of that. Um, and it's special. I do feel that tide is changing and I do feel also, I hope obviously this season we do reach the promised land again. Oh, but yes. if it wasn't if it wasn't to happen, I don't think it'd be a deal breaker in that sense because I, I feel like these lads, especially the younger ones that are coming, they're not coming because we're Premier League at the moment. Obviously, if we are, that you That's know, just that comes, on the cake, isn't it? They're really? coming because you know it's an opportunity to watch a live match, but also get behind their local team. Yeah.
3: So how how would you like to, to move it forward? And do, dare I touch on the subject of biryanis?
2: i got a I'll answer that part first. Um, one of the things, and it's not to do with the biryanis at all. One of the things that I did say, um, and we've had a conversation, to be honest with you, with um, in, within the commercial team as well, is to say we are the only Indian-owned team in the whole of the English football league. Previously, obviously, there was a lot of kind of in terms of the ownership and everything else, and you know what happened, what transpired when they first took over. But the, the fact that the Venkis have supported the club, you know, f- uh, through the past um 10 years or so for me what from what I see 99% of fans are now we you know it's a good job we do have them otherwise you know we'd be struggling yeah. so yeah. now I think it's a stage where we say we're, we are the only Indian owned team in the English Football League and I remember speaking to someone who's telling me about Leicester being Thai owned and there's so much Thai culture within the stadium yeah. itself so much stuff going on that kind of you know brings in that kind of element of the ownership and what they're about. And I said, sometimes football, you know, what's your reason for supporting Blackburn Rovers? As much as it is the fact that, you know, that's your childhood team and that's everything else, sometimes you've got to play on those unique, you know, selling so points a USP, as well, in it? the sense it is companies and and commercially as well, you know, to someone, why would they be aligned with Blackburn Rovers? Um, you know, sometimes you've got to look at those little USPs, and you've got to try and say, right, we're going to use those USPs, but also we're going to be a bit more loud about it, a bit more proud about it. Um, and the biryani thing was the fact that not it's it's not a case, and I had this conversation with someone yesterday. It's not a case of this is a biryani that's going to be for those South Asian fans who are coming into the stadium. No, this is something for everyone to say. Do you know what? Everyone likes a curry. It's not a curry as such, it's a rice dish, but it's not. But, but everyone likes the curry and, you know, we are Indian you owned know, and we need to be proud of that. And this is something that we're offering, you know, where a bit unique to that.
3: More than a third of people in Blackburn describe themselves as Asian. More than a third describe themselves as Muslim. But that is not represented in these stands on match days.
0: We'd be quite foolish as a club if, if we didn't explore uh, the, the different... Uh, communities based within the town obviously to to future proof the club going forward I think
3: that's one of the benefits of diversification though because people will, well people do, I do complain about the concourse offering or whatever and you sort of think well, I, I get frustrated with us not exploiting the commercial possibilities of what we could do So, you know, get people coming down to the ground at half past 12 and having the lunch at the ground and have lots of different price ranges and lots of different culinary offerings and have loads and loads of merchandise in loads and loads of shops to cater for all the age groups. Tap into every demographic and all that sort of good stuff. I'm a frustrated marketeer, as you can tell. Every time I see something that sort of moves us closer to that goal, I sort of uh, embrace it. Make the most of it. There are people out there that might just spend an extra three or four pounds with the club that otherwise wouldn't have done if you if you provide that offering. And right now, what we need every pound that we can get. Let's 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 face it. So anything that anybody does, I just want to welcome with open arms. So all joking aside, yeah, if that's the the start of a journey that has us diversifying lots of different offerings commercially catering whatever it might be then i think that that's a really really good thing
2: because yeah. from from my perspective commercially i'm lucky i don't have to make some of the decisions in that sense oh, i'm not yes. i'm,
0: I'm,
2: I'm <laughs> fortunate because sometimes some of those things are chicken and egg it's, do you spend to get the you know the fans in or
3: again Akron and stanley are um, are very much my benchmark on that because andy holt is so open uh, and he will sort of say he, he always welcomes proposals to spend when it generates income so so, so I, I'm never sure. I think one of his tweets was, I'm never short of ideas, but there's only a few of them that are ideas that will generate income. So if it's about, yeah. as they are doing at the moment, you know, redeveloping their main stand and putting a function room in, if it's about having fan zones, as, as, as we have, of course, behind the men and things like that, spend money to generate money, That that's a good thing.
2: It's, uh, it's interesting to say that because the fan zone thing has definitely been something that's high on the agenda over the last few weeks. And that's something that I know, you know, that de- you know, we definitely need to look at. But in terms of growing, um, so like I mentioned, I came in January 2020. Um, I was given, and all credit to the board and the owners and every, everyone else who was part of that was, I was kind of given a clean slate to say, look, these are the kind of things we want you to do. These are the yeah. stuff, but you tell us what the strategy is, and we'll guide you along that path. Yeah. And I've had their support literally from you know if whenever I've never had a you can't do this don't you know and it's always been a case of uh, and from that perspective the board and the owners have been very very supportive of everything we've done but one of the things that when I came in was when I was speaking to those fan groups and supported you know supporters who have got season tickets especially from the South Asian background and you know from the more diverse communities it was the fact that you know sometimes the you know it was something that they remembered you know from 10-15 years ago yeah. sometimes you know it was some of those memories so initially i kind of like made a conscious decision to turn around and say okay do you know what right now we're going to concentrate on that next generation younger fan ideally what i'd like to do is for that work to continue and grow and kind of you know for that it would express to be a service that's offered you know uh, match days and for that, just keep growing. But also then to start looking at the younger teens um, and, you know, how we engage with them, because at the moment, the U Express is predominantly a service for under-12s. Right. But you've got a massive, massive kind of, you know, gap there between your 14 to 21-year-olds, teenagers who are spending far too much time doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Um, and, you know, being inside a football stadium would be a lot better for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's a different strategy for that, how to get them in, how to pull them in. And sometimes, you know, some of the things you've mentioned, it's that match day environment, you know, being able to enjoy that day, the experience and everything that goes with it. I think it's the, it's the way of the
3: modern sporting world, isn't it? To make sporting occasions an event. So you kind of like, you don't yeah. go to the so match. And I think cricket's another good example of that. The way that we've gone from a day at the Test match to T20 uh, and now the 100, and all everything that goes with that. So, yeah, the purists might be turned off about it. Well, yeah, but it's kind of not for you.
2: It's for these other folks yeah, that, 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 that yeah, aren't interested you, in it. You kind of hit the nail on the head there. The, the difficulty we have, I, to a degree, is, and I'll give you an example, the Riverside fans don't want to move from the Riverside. They love the Riverside. They love being there. My son's a massive cricket fan. He'd love to go watch a test match. I, there's no way in hell I'm taking him to watch a Test match because I can't, you know, there's no way I'm sitting there watching that. <laughs> uh, Dep- de- de- depends him. if
3: England are playing, I suppose. Yeah.
2: yeah, I'll take him to watch the 100. I'll take him to watch a One Day International yeah. or something like that. And it's finding that mix that appeals to, and but at the same time doesn't kind of alienate, you know, your core base. And I'll give you an example. You know, we've got different lounges within the, on, in the match day as well. And some, you know, there's a large portion of people who come into those, even blues bar, who'd be like, "Don't touch it. This is, you know, this is what I come for." And then there'll be a lot of people who'll be coming and saying, "How about you do this? How about you try that?" Yeah. But the problem is, the the, the purists will be like, "Yeah, I can't believe it. You know, yeah. and why would you touch that? This is what I come for." So it's a case of not upsetting.
3: It's like a it's like new flavour Coke, isn't it? So that you, you bring out a new, a new flavour and it kills your brand completely. And people go and move on to something different. It, it, that's a, that's a, yeah, obviously a massive, massive conundrum. Uh, that's worthy of a conversation yeah. in and of itself at some point, maybe in the future. But that, that's, that's been terrific okay. insight.
2: Are we all excited? Yeah. And this is one of the ways they've been trying to change things the Ewood Express. Buses bringing children to match days from schools like this. On the other side of town, <laughs> it's, it's all been spearheaded all by Yazeer. Um, so what we did was we opened the black Men and Upper Stand just for those, um, just that the Ewood Express. So, so they
3: sp- outgrew this stand because it's yes, been so popular. Yes, exactly.
2: So at the Preston game, we had over 650 kids coming. One thing I do want to mention is, um, as much as my role is, you know, predominantly aimed towards targeting, obviously, the South Asian community. One of the things that we are, and I am, um, the club have told me is. We are and we get a lot of support from our community trust as well um yeah. our community trust do some amazing work um in and around the borough helping a lot of different groups um and the one thing that um has touched me more than anything else is the number of conversations we have at the football Club about bringing the kind of fan in who can't afford to come to a game
3: yeah.
2: or who you know who doesn't have the financial capital you know to be able to or their parent don't know how to go and buy a ticket for example and from that perspective in terms of work we're doing it's it's not just you know from my perspective and from the owners and the board as well it's not just about oh this is for the south asian community it's about all communities where you know there's barriers to entry
3: it's for it's for potential blackburn rovers fans and it kind of doesn't matter who they are and where they're from
2: exactly um, and you know, with the help of the community trust and with the help of the club, that's something that you know. Um, we even had just a conversation yesterday to turn on and say, right, how can we create more opportunities and how can we make it easier for them to be able to come and enjoy, you know, watching a match at Ewood. There's different people who are kind of looking at the more wider fan base in terms of the adults and how can we, you know, improve our gates and stuff like that. I'm glad again I don't have that job, but what I do want to say is. Um, in terms of the role going forward, if, uh, you know, I my Twitter's open, people can follow me, people can always send me messages in terms of, you know, what they think might work. I get quite a few messages on a weekly basis to say, have you tried this, <laughs> like that, Exactly, and, you know, sometimes, like you said, you can't try everything, but more than open to have those conversations. And uh, what one thing I do want to say is thanks for your support because that's been, you know, massive part of, you know, growing that social media profile, and I know you share more or less everything, you know, um, I post out really. So I just want to say thanks for your support as well.
3: You know, that's been really good. No, uh, I, as I say, yeah, we yeah, we're all fans. Yeah, at the end of the day, I, we all want what's best for the club. I guess we all we all yeah. come at it from slightly different angles, but. I think it's it's absolutely fantastic to see us growing a diverse supporter base and everything that we can yeah. do that generates income for the club and enables us to hold on to those players and enables us to play at the highest level possible is a good thing. So we've got to get behind it. So absolutely, any time, as yeah, say, you're, you're welcome on the pod if there's anything that you ever want to talk about. But thank you very much you're for welcome. that chat. It's been really, really enlightening, really, really entertaining yes. and uh, wish you all the very best <laughs> for the rest of the season and. and Pass on our best of the team, obviously. For financial reasons, the RFCS podcast needs a transition into a sponsorship message. This is that transition.
0: You're looking for the perfect gift for a football fan, aren't you? In that case, you need to go to Terrastore.com and search through the marvellous range of Rovers products. You'll see mugs, prints, bags and much, much more all in the colours of your favourite team, Blackburn Rovers. And as you are a loyal listener to the BRFCS podcast enter BRFCS at the checkout to secure a 10% discount.
3: So we're going to shamelessly rip off another podcast format now for our own ends because we're too bone idle to come up with our own content. That's right. What we're doing now is we're ripping off the Football Rambles, Luke's game, and we're giving it a Rovers twist. And I'm going to call it Rovers Player History Poker. Yeah, fair rolls off the tongue. So what I've done here is I've got the records, the playing records, of a number of Rovers heroes. And I'm going to ask our panellists to see just how many of their former clubs they can name. It's got to be professional clubs, and they've got to have actually made an appearance. So if somebody were to have gone out on loan, but never made an appearance, or was a youngster at a club, but never made a first-team appearance, that club doesn't count. I'm going to go to our guest, Ryan Hildred, first of all. The player that I've got in mind played for 12 clubs during his career, and he is... Jonathan Stead How many of those 12 clubs do you think You can name for John Stead Five Five, that's a high bid He's feeling bold Linz, can you go higher than five Or are you willing to let Ryan play
0: Are we allowed to include Rovers Yes No, I'll let Ryan play
3: Michael, can you go higher than five Or are you going to let Ryan play (laughs)
1: No, let Ryan go on this one.
3: I'd... Okay, five. That's a bold bid. Fire away, sir. If you get one wrong, that's it. You're out, I'm afraid. So name those clubs.
1: Huddersfield. Yes. Ro- Rovers. Yes. <laughs> Sunderland. Yes. Harrogate Town. Yes. And Bradford.
3: Oh, very good. Very good indeed. Uh, you You almost got them in the right order as well. Just played I was played after that. Played for I don't know any of us before <laughs> Harrogate Town. Can either of you um can any of you, the other two name any of these uh, his other clubs?
0: He was at Notts County.
3: He was yes. at Notts County. That's right Yeah, and Sheffield United. And at Sheffield United. And to complete the set, well I'll read them out in, in, in order. So he started at Huddersfield, joined Rovers, Rovers sold him to Sunderland, Sunderland loaned him to Derby County. Sheffield United then bought him and loaned him to Ipswich, who then bought him and loaned him to Coventry. Bristol City then bought him. He returned to Huddersfield Town. Huddersfield Town <laughs> loaned him out to Oldham Athletic and Bradford City. And it was while he was at Bradford City, of course, he played in that memorable FA Cup game against Chelsea, where they won at, um, at Stamford Bridge. Um, he, did, he does mention that on our little podcast chat, if folks want to dig that one out. Very entertaining chat. Uh, Then he went to Notts County and finished his career at Harrogate Town. One of my heroes, I have to say. Notwithstanding his short stint at Rovers. So, well done there, Ryan. Right, Linz, I'm going to come to you next. God. And the player I've got in mind is the one that you've told me in the past converted you into being a Rover supporter. Tim Flowers. Tim played for seven clubs. But how many of those seven... Could you name? Ah, oh, um, I'm
0: gonna go four.
3: Mm-mm, bold Michael, can you go higher than four? Yeah, I reckon I can. How many? Five. You're going five. Ryan, can you do six? Or are we letting Michael play? <coughs> I can't do six. No. Right, pressure's on, Mr. Taylor. Then five clubs that Tim Flowers played for.
1: Uh, well, Blackman Rovers, Wolverhampton Wanderers, Southampton. Leicester City and Stockport
3: County. I trust you to get Stockport County. I don't think there's <laughs> anybody else I know that could have got Stockport County. Until I did this, I had no idea that he'd ever gone to Stockport County. That's yeah, a terrific that's answer. Long. Yeah. Uh, he also played for Swindon Town on loan and Coventry City on loan. And he did go to Manchester City on loan right at the end of his career, but he never played for them. Never played for them. So there we go. Right. Michael. Your your bid, your opening bid. We've mentioned him earlier in dispatches. It's Daniel Anthony William Graham oh, oh. who played for twelve clubs. Twelve fucking hell. How many of those twelve do you think you could name? Six. Ryan, can you name seven?
1: You are it. Yes.
3: You're going seven. That's bold. I like I like yeah, the bold seven, bids. Seven. Linz, can you name eight? No. Okay, it's going to Ryan to play <gasps> and to and to steal the format in this inaugural Rovers player history poker. Daniel, Anthony, William, Graham played for Rovers. How did you ever guess that? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Watford. Yes. Sunderland. Yes. Norwich.
3: At this point, I need to put a uh, uh. ah. Sadly, he did not that play one. for Norwich. Any any other any other bids from anybody else? for other clubs that he played for. Swansea. Swansea, yes. Middlesbrough. Did we say
1: Middlesbrough, Middlesbrough, Middlesbrough? Yes.
3: Middlesbrough twice, actually.
1: Yeah, those two in reserve. I would have more, really more northeast clubs.
3: Did you go to Hull on loan? No. He did? Yeah. Still another North East club.
0: Was it Carlisle?
3: Yes. Still another North East club. I'm County Carlisle's said, North West. We've said we, Sunderland, haven't we? We've said yes.
0: Sunderland and Middlesbrough. Not yes.
3: Hartlepool. Not Hartlepool, but Darlington. Darlington. He went on Darlington. loan to Darlington when he was a youngster at Middlesbrough. He also oh. went on loan to Derby County. Leeds oh. United on loan, amazingly, three appearances. <laughs> Blackpool on loan which I didn't appreciate no. four appearances on loan I'll have to tell Mikey Delap for his DeLap's derbies because I'm not sure we've got him in the list of former Blackpool players Carlisle United we mentioned Watford, Swansea, Sunderland Hull on loan Back to Middlesbrough on loan Wolves on loan Blackburn Rovers on loan Blackburn Rovers permanently and as I think we all know he ended his career uh, less than illustriously at Sunderland so a bold bid there Ryan but it didn't pay off I'm afraid
1: Failure, story of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Rovers taking
2: their time about this free kick. That's it, that's a great ball. In towards Cole, down by the corner flag. Batcher with him. Just keep holding it. Cole with Hignett.
3: Yordi waits in the centre. Could be a chance for a third goal here. Pulled back across, comes off the defender. Rovers really should have let that go for a corner done, back to Cole again, I make it time up, referee Graham Pole checks his watch, Cole in possession of the far side, he's blown his whistle and Rovers have won the Wurnton Cup here at Cardiff, what an amazing afternoon, the Rovers fans celebrating on the far side, Graham with Phil Bosma
1: hugging each other on the far side, Andy Cole with the winner in the second half, what an afternoon Stuart Merckoff. Oh, it's a great team, I've never witnessed anything like this in all my career, as long as I've been involved with Blackburn Rovers. It must be great for Graham Sooners and all the back ring staff and everything. It's tremendous. It's a tremendous achievement. It was a very tight game. We felt at half-time,
3: there wasn't a great deal in it. I thought we, we shaded it second half, although they will point to, you know, possibly a penalty. I don't know if it was a, pen, a penalty in, in the dying minutes and possibly, well, Brad made a really good save later on. But I felt, I felt we
2: shaded it. Close game. good for our club. No, we're, we're the small club, they're the big club. Great for us. It's a great feeling winning things, and this is no different, you know, I'm, I've won quite a bit of silverware in my time with Man United, but, I mean, this is nice to win as well.
0: Well, I think we we were coming in as the underdogs, but we also knew that we can play football, so, we just came out and did the best that we could and we came out winners. us. Well, it's, it's great for the
3: club. I mean, they've been in a major final for 40-odd for years and to, to come here and enjoy the day and, and win it as well, uh, when not a lot of people expect us to, to get much out of the game, I think it's fantastic for everybody involved. Right, so what we're going to do now is we're going to shamelessly rip off the Quickly Kevin podcast. I hope Josh Whitcomb isn't listening. And we're going, to get, we're going to try and name the squad from Rovers 2002 League Cup Triumph. This clearly disadvantages our youngest member of the panel, Matt. So we're going to give him four lives, but I'm only going to give Scott and Holly two, because I'm just a meanie. Even though Holly herself was not but a little, uh, alas, watching that game surely glued to the TV. So, the idea is, we will na- you. I'll come to you in turn, you will name somebody you thought was in the 16-man squad for the 2002 League Cup final... No Googling on your phones, you're on trust here. But you've got two lives, Holly and Scott, and Matt, I'll give you four lives. So, we'll kick off with Holly. Can you name anyone from the Rover squad of the 2002 League Cup final?
0: I'm going to go for a really easy one. Um, he uh, scored a goal, uh, recent, well, I say recently, I did get to meet him. Apple of my eye, Matt Janssen.
3: Spot on, correct, you're Okay. Matt, can you name someone from a match that took place before you were even on the planet? Talk about making it you easy see, for you.
2: I'm not going to lie to you. That that one that's already gone is the only one that I know because that's who I'm named after. Is it really? So, so I'm what
1: about, way, <laughs> what about the goalkeeper?
2: What about the goalkeeper?
3: Extremely famous uh, in Rovers history. <sighs>
0: American Grand goalkeeper.
3: Freedon? Yes! There you go. Yes. See, you're off the mark. Scott, I expect you to rattle through the remaining 14 now. Just um, give us one. Please, can you pick the, the, the harder one? The,
2: the guy who set Matt Janssen up, Keith Gillespie.
3: Correct. As I say, you're all untrusty that you're not Googling it. But Holly, back to you. No lives lost so far.
0: I'm going to go for the other goal scorer, Andy Cole.
3: Correct. Matt, pressure's on you again. <laughs> Ro- Rovers legend, midfield, local lad. He's one of our own. David Dunn. Correct. See, easy. Scott? <laughs> um, captain for the day, Henningberg. Correct. Holly, back to you. it um, get interesting rack, soon, I think.
0: Racking my brains now, and I'm struggling to remember whether he was still with us, but he's in my mind because he's just, I think, taken his first managerial job. Um, I'm going to go for Duffers.
3: Correct, Damien
0: Duff.
3: Correct. It's all going well so far. Matt pressures back on you. What clues can I give you?
2: Uh, um, I've, I think I might just have to take it, take a life here. What? One of them has
3: already been mentioned in one of one of the earlier answers. So, if you were paying attention earlier to a name that was one of the lone signs. Uh,
2: I can't say I was paying
0: much
3: attention to this. <laughs> uh, that's, that's very honest of you. You lose a life. Scott? I've given you the clue now as well, of course. Um, well, yeah, Alan Marm. Alan Marm was on the suspense. A... Holly,
0: back to you. Um, I'm going to go for an ex manager because I think he was playing at that time. Mark Hughes.
3: Spot on. He was uh, absolutely terrific in centre midfield that day. Yeah. Matt? Are you out then? You have nothing else. Nothing (laughs) else to give. There's nothing. There's nothing else in my brain on this one. No, I think you're going to struggle on the others. I must admit, given that you weren't born, so it it goes down to Scott and Holly now, head to head. Scott, Um, I think. Neil Eric Johansson played centre half. He did indeed. Holly, back to you.
0: Oh dear. Um, Craig Hignett.
3: Yes. Pulled that one out. He was on the subs bench. Scott? Um,
1: left back, sticking a bit.
3: Spot on. Right, we're da- we're down amongst it now. There's only one of the starting eleven left to get and three of the substitutes. One of the substitutes you might remember. Holly?
0: Oh, I don't... Can't think of anyone else now. Do I get point for the manager? <laughs>
3: <laughs> Go on, I'll be sporting, Give the, given that you were so young at the time.
0: Uh, it was Graham Sooners, wasn't it? It was indeed,
3: yes. Scott, can you finish the squad off?
1: So, it was Martin Taylor at right back.
0: Yeah.
3: Mm. An
1: unusual selection, really, putting him in at right back. Because uh, I think John Curtis might have been on the bench.
3: He was indeed he was indeed can you remember the reserve keeper I can and the reason I can is because sadly he died absolutely yeah Um, very recently and it's Alan Miller and I think Alan Kelly was our normal reserve keeper but for some reason he was injured I think maybe yeah we were were absolutely um, decimated by injuries and suspensions leading up to that match I was amazed that we were able to get a team out of any description to win the trophy on that day was absolutely extraordinary so who's the missing man then the man who. So the, su- the subs who came on were Hignett. Um How many subs came on? Two. So the, 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 what is the second uh, sub? That so we...
1: It's Yordi. The man. Yordi, yeah.
3: yes. On loan from, I want to say Santander, is that right? Might not be right, that. Zaragoza, Sar- it's oh, Zaragoza. It yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. Came over on loan, played in a cup final, took a winner's medal home, and disappeared, never to be seen again. Yeah. <laughs> Great day, that. An absolutely terrific day. He enjoyed
0: his day out.
3: It was splendid. I mean, that, that, talk about best loan signings. That's got to be the best loan move for him, for sure. <laughs> I think he made the most of it. And there you have it. Another episode in the can. I'd like to say thank you to the following people for their contributions to this episode Matt Hall, Isabella White, Josh Henry, Bill Arthur, Daniel Gray, Yasa Sufi, Josh Boswell, Ryan Hildred, Lindsay Lewis, Michael Taylor, Holly Hawksford, Matt Grimshaw, Scott Sumner, Renzo Musica, and The Symmetry. Thanks for listening, we'll be back soon. one thing before we go, go any further how do I pronounce your name is it Yazia
2: everyone in the office calls me Yazia um, only because the pronunciation is probably a bit more difficult from so if my family were to say it and I'll say it in the way we'd say it, yeah. uh, it Yazira
3: Hi, I'm Ben Britton, and uh,
1: you're listening to BRFC's Supporters Podcast.
2: Let's go, rovers!
1: <laughs> and I said, Ben, 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 Prere, don't, don't, do a goal, goal,
2: goal, goal, my heart explodes with joy. And I said, ben, 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 Prere, don't, don't, don't. a goal, 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 my heart explodes with joy.